this week with a reading from the website of Richard Rohr's Center for Action and Contemplation. This outline is a reading adapted from his book, The Shape of God, Deepening the Mystery of the Trinity. Just as some Eastern fathers saw Christ's human-slash-divine nature as one dynamic unity, they also saw the Trinity as an infinite dynamic flow. The Western Church tended to have a more static view of both Christ and the Trinity, more a mathematical conundrum than an invitation to new consciousness. In our attempts to explain the Trinitarian mystery, the Western Church overemphasized the individual names, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But not so much the quality of the relationships between them, which is where all the power and meaning lies. So let's not spend too much time arguing about the gender of the three. The real and essential point is how the three persons relate to one another. Infinite outpouring and infinite receiving. The mystery of God as Trinity invites us into full participation with God. A flow. A relationship. A water wheel of always outpouring love. God is a verb much more than a noun. Some Christian mystics taught that all of creation is being taken back into this flow of eternal life, almost as if we are a fourth person of the Trinity, or as Jesus put it, so that where I am, you also may be, from John 14.3. The Cappadocian fathers of the 4th century first developed this theology. Though they readily admitted the Trinity is a wonderful mystery that can never be fully understood with the rational mind but can only be known through love, prayer, and suffering. Contemplation of God as Trinity was made to order to undercut the dualistic mind. This view of Trinity invites us to interactively experience God as transpersonal in the Father, personal in Christ, and even impersonal in the Holy Spirit, all at once. The Cappadocian teaching moved to the West, but was not broadly communicated. Scottish theologian Richard of St. Victor reflected this early theology. He taught at great length that for God to be truth, God had to be one. For God to be love, God had to be two. And for God to be joy, God had to be three. True Trinitarian theology offers the soul endless creativity, an open horizon. Trinitarian thinkers do not seem to have much interest in things like hell, punishment, or any notion of earning or losing. They are only overwhelmed by infinite abundance and flow. Our supposed logic has to break down before we can comprehend the nature of the universe and the bare beginnings of the nature of God. Paraphrasing physicist Niels Bohr, the doctrine of the Trinity is saying that God is not only stranger than we think, but stranger than we can think. Perhaps much of the weakness of many Christian doctrines and dogmas is that we've tried to understand them with a logical or rational mind, 
instead of through love, prayer, and participation in itself. In the end, only lovers seem to know what is going on inside of God. To all others, God remains an impossible and distant secret, just like the galaxies. End quote. But I will link to that quote in the show notes this week. So, that's all well and good. But what we want to know is, how does the Bible outline Trinitarian theology? Well, it doesn't. What? The Trinity isn't explicitly mentioned in the Bible. Uh-oh. I'm Anthony Mako. Welcome to Postmodern Liturgy. Welcome to the Sunday dedicated to the Holy Trinity. Next Sunday is also known as the first Sunday after Pentecost. This whole after Pentecost thing will continue all the way through the end of November. We are now in ordinary time. I don't think I've said much about this until now, but there are several reasons I love following the lectionary. Two of the main ones are, number one, it makes a broader connection possible where one could be, or at least at one point could have been, reasonably certain that others on the Christian faith journey were considering the same concepts they were on any given week. And number two, the lectionary connects us to the narrative of scripture and helps us not drift too far into current events or topics. I think it's entirely appropriate to focus on current topics, but oftentimes the messaging of any given church is led by a singular leader. That leader is probably susceptible to operating from their own perspective. For for example, a leader could say, you know, I just think we have a sin problem, which would lead them to yell at a bunch of people about the things that they themselves tend to struggle with. However, ordinary time, though it isn't any less planned than any other section of the lectionary, offers some freedom in topics. For this reason, I'm going to take a couple opportunities to outline themes that may not be explicitly outlined in the lectionary, or may not be given a huge amount of time. So, in the coming weeks, I will take a couple opportunities to explore other topics. The format of the podcast will be the same, but I'll be putting together the reading schedule myself. Coming soon, although I don't know exactly when yet, will be a series of weeks on eco-theology. On the heels of my trip, I would love the opportunity to outline the scriptural basis for creation theology and engagement with creation. That's just one example I wanted to share. But for now, this is Holy Trinity Week. A very interesting week, in my opinion, for reasons we will explore after the readings for this week, which begin now.
Proverbs 8, verses 1 through 4, and verses 22 through 31. Does not wisdom call, and does not understanding raise her voice? On the heights beside the way, at the crossroads, she takes her stand. Beside the gates, in front of the town, at the entrance of the portal, she cries out. To you, O people, I call, and my cry is to all that live. Yahweh created me at the beginning of God's work, the first of God's acts of long ago. Ages ago, I was set up, at the first before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth, when there were no springs abounding with water. Before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth. When God had not yet made earth and fields, or the world's first bits of soil, when God established the heavens, I was there. When God drew a circle on the face of the deep, when God made firm the skies above, when God established the fountains of the deep, when God assigned to the sea its limit, so that the waters might not transgress God's command, when God marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside God like a master worker, and I was daily God's delight, rejoicing before God always, rejoicing in God's inhabited world and delighting in the human race. Psalm 8 O Yahweh, our Sovereign, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babes and infants, you have founded a bulwark because of your foes to silence the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have established, What are human beings that you're mindful of them? Mortals that you care for them? Yet you have made them a little lower than God and crowned them with glory and honor. You have given them dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under their feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Yahweh, our Sovereign, how majestic is your name in all the earth.
Romans 5, 1-5 Therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand, and we boast in our hope of sharing the glory of God. And not only in that, but we also boast in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not disappoint us, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. John 16, 12-15 I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, she will guide you into all the truth. For she will not speak on her own, but will speak whatever she hears, and she will declare to you the things that are to come. She will glorify me, because she will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. For this reason I said she will take what is mine and declare it to you. I find this week really odd in a really good way. In many ways, we have narrowed all forms of formation to smaller and smaller bits of communication material. Let's put it in terms of Christian formation. The spoken word segment of worship gatherings generally has gone from well over an hour to like 40 minutes to a tight 20. And now people attempt to have a deep impact with about 200 words in a tweet or a social media post, or just two words on a bumper sticker. Don't get me wrong, this is a simple observation, not a judgment. Honestly, I've been in a lot of situations where pastors made 20 minutes feel like a year of my life by saying the same vague concept over and over for 19 minutes and 30 seconds more than they needed. So tweet on but I do think we've lost a lot of nuance in our formation. 
What is scheduled for this week should be wrestled with for a lifetime. So let's admit that up front. I also think my playful phrase at the beginning is quite important. The doctrine of the Trinity didn't really come from the Bible directly. In many ways, the doctrine of the Trinity is extra-biblical. Maybe not in content, but the content wasn't gathered until later. More on that in a couple minutes. With that being said, I do think I have an interesting way to weave this reflection together in three different sections. First, by reflecting on the readings. Second, by briefly discussing wisdom. And third, by giving a little bit of history on the doctrine of the Trinity. So, first, the readings. The New Testament readings would seem to be included because they both mention the three persons in the Trinity. At first glance, the passage in Psalms and the one in Proverbs would appear to be unrelated. That is, until we invoke wisdom to bring it all together. But the passage in Psalms makes a really interesting point I don't want to miss. We have the typical creation themes that one would find in the Psalms. But then there is a curious juxtaposition of infants slash babies against one's enemies. What is the mechanism God uses to silence enemies and foes? The most insignificant people, at least in the context of a battle. It would seem this psalm is making clear, as Erdman's commentary says, that God is proclaimed by insignificant people. Additionally, and this has nothing to do with the topic this week, but I want to make another point about the passage in Psalms, just as a clarification. I don't want you to be taken off guard later when I let you know that dominion over creation, or as the passage in Psalms says, putting creation under our feet is not an excuse to exploit creation. We are stewards, not owners. But we will get more into that in later episodes. Just don't be kicking stuff around in the meantime. The connection of the other three readings besides the passage in Psalms moves us into the second section of the reflection this week. Strictly speaking, it seems unnuanced to claim these passages are about the Trinity, since that concept hadn't developed at the time of authorship of these passages. It's probably more appropriate to relate them through the theme of wisdom. I hope it'll become clear why I'm being so nitpicky. You see, most philosophers who were doing their thing when much of the New Testament was authored were obsessed with Sophia, or wisdom. The New Testament writers, especially the author of the fourth gospel, they were as well, understood it roughly like this. The passage in Proverbs outlines this idea pretty explicitly. Wisdom was the first creation of the Father, was present for the rest of creation, was incarnate in Christ, and remained through the Holy Spirit. Sophia was sort of a cosmic, holy, pure truth. Well, why does that matter? Well, I think it's the best way of understanding the passage in the fourth gospel this week. To track that passage's trajectory, Jesus came to clarify the original wisdom of the Father. But, as John 16:12 notes, Jesus was pretty clear that the disciples basically still didn't understand what was going on at all. Jesus had to go 
So the Holy Spirit comes as grace for the developing understanding of the disciples. And that's what leads us to the Trinity. The doctrine of the Trinity was developed during and around the year 325, at the same time that the Nicene-Constantinopolitan Creed was being drafted. The major question was, are the three persons of the Trinity homoousius, same substance, or homoousius, similar substance? AKA, are they like each other or are they the same as each other? In 325, it was decided that they are the same, homoousius, three persons, one God. The three exist in what Amos Young called the interpenetrating relationship of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, making God a complete community within God's self. Anything that is true of the Son is true of the Father, is true of the Spirit, and vice, vice versa. But it is important to note that most theologians hesitate to say much about the doctrine of the Trinity, or rather their sentences about the Trinity always have a half a question mark at the end. Similarly, I could go on and on about what people have said about the implications of Trinitarian theology. In fact, I'm sure I will over the course of this podcast. But looking at the readings this week made a pretty clear takeaway pop out at me. The doctrine of the Trinity is, in many ways, a form of progressive revelation, or at least progressive understanding. It is one of the most essential aspects of the Christian faith, and it's not found in Scripture. The pieces are there, sure, but there wasn't much understanding of those pieces until something like 200 years after they were written. Furthermore, this progressive revelation is not only allowed, it is expected as we learn from the passage in the fourth gospel. It isn't so much that we're changing anything or creating something new. It's a humility in interpretation. It is saying, I think maybe we understand this concept better now. On this Trinity Sunday, These readings remind us that our understanding is sure to develop as we wrestle with the text. Let me give you what should be a super easy example. Someone says, the Bible condones slavery. My response would be, there are some passages that miss an opportunity to condemn it, but the narrative of scripture is generally about liberation. My understanding makes me 100% confident that God is vehemently against the horrific practice of slavery. And now for the grand finale. In speaking about wisdom, several authors of the New Testament were basically just talking about what other philosophers of the time were talking about. Wisdom. However, I think the New Testament writers introduced a unique thought well ahead of their time. Wisdom is subjective as opposed to objective. And of course, much of this thought is inspired by Kierkegaard. Who else? Wisdom is subjective as opposed to objective. We don't actually rely on some objective truth here. Wisdom comes in relation to God. Wisdom is born of the Father, incarnate through the Son, and available even now through the Holy Spirit. 
And now we've come to the place that everyone feared with a name like postmodern liturgy. We're leaning too far over the cliff that overlooks Relativism Canyon. And I say, jump right on in. Subjectivity and relativism just basically mean in relation to something. And quite frankly, it is much healthier to understand that Christians are shaped in relation to God or the Trinity rather than claiming to understand or own absolute truth. We have confidence in our relationship to the source of wisdom or truth, which comes from three persons because they're homoousius, the same. The Trinity is a community, or as Rohr says, a dance of self-giving love. The Trinity is active. Wisdom is teaching us the dance steps, and we are invited to be formed by the divine dance of the Trinity. Thanks for joining me again this week. I'd love if you'd join us online. We're at postmodernliturgy.com. We are at Postmodern Liturgy on Facebook and Instagram, and at PM Liturgy on Twitter. I would love it if you would consider supporting our work. You can do that for free by sharing and rating and reviewing the podcast, or financially at patreon.com slash postmodernliturgy. If you visit our Patreon site, you can see several great benefits for our supporters. Thanks again for joining me, and enjoy the tension.